Welcome back, guys. I got a special guest here, Tax Tone, Anthony Price, one of my good friends. Extremely intelligent when it comes to taxes. He's a CPA, and I know taxes is a very scary topic. It's complex. It affects literally everyone in the United States, whether you are working a nine to five, whether you're working multiple jobs, whether you're an entrepreneur, and we're actually going to be filming a couple shows. So if you guys watch this show, definitely check out the other ones where we break down different key topics when it comes to, again, everyday tax general knowledge, uh, whether again, you have a nine to five job or you are a small business owner, small business owners are the backbone of the United States. So I'm very confident today, you guys are going to get a ton, a ton of value. And again, check out the other shows. Anthony, welcome to the All for Nothing podcast. What's up, brother? How are you? Thank you, Tyler. Doing great. Very happy to be here. Excited to bust some myths. Excited to share some free game. Been looking forward to this for a while. Ohio, Columbus is amazing. My first time in Ohio. Love it here. The beaches are nice. The (laughs) surfing's good. Exactly. Appreciate you making the trip, man. I know you're traveling around. You got a lot Mm -hmm. of clients. So it means a lot that you came on the show and you're going to be sharing a ton, a ton of free value. Uh, Invaluable, man. I'm talking you're going to be able to, you know, keep and compound. That's, that's what it comes down to when it comes to money, when it comes to taxes, how do you earn it? How do you keep it? How do you compound it? And exactly what you said, I think is where we need to start are the myths, right? Uh, You know, money, investing, taxes, all those topics are simple yet very complex. So let's start with what are taxes? What are the myths? What are the things that you see in everyday, uh, you know, individuals that you're talking to, whether they're again in a job or maybe they're a small business owner. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked what you said at the beginning where taxes play such an important role in the lives of every single American, right? Like it's, it's something that many people don't even realize because the majority of citizens in the US are W-2 earners and therefore they don't even see the taxes coming out of their check. They just see how much they receive net right? After the Medicare and the social security and the unemployment and the income taxes. And all of a sudden, four different types of taxes are taken out of your paycheck before you receive anything. Government gets paid first. And then you're happy when you receive a refund at the end of the year because you accidentally extended a loan to the U.S. government, right? Quite the loan. So um, what is taxes? Taxes, it's important to look at taxes as an incentive structure because here's one of the biggest myths, right? One of the biggest myths is that the IRS wants you to pay taxes. And of course, they want you to comply with IRS tax laws, but they're happy to allow you to pay zero taxes if you put your money in the right places. So taxes are an incentive structure, right? If you put all your money into deductions, right, into expenses, that are deductible, right? Where the IRS wants you to invest your money, you can end up paying zero taxes. And the IRS is completely happy with that because they're incentivizing things that will help grow the economy, benefit the government, benefit our society. And so that's why it's so important to take control of your knowledge, take control of the tax code, use it to your advantage so that you can grow your wealth, so you can benefit society and you can keep more of your money at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's that's obviously why I'm encouraging everyone to listen through, get the notepad out. I'm gonna be taking notes. I'm gonna be referencing some notes I already have prepped. Uh, a lot of people uh, responded to a post that I put out there as far as questions they have. And uh, let's start with the confusion, right? Like we're not taught about 
taxes and money and investing, unless mm-hmm. you obviously go specialize and uh, major that, you know, major in that in, in a university, but it's over 80,000 pages uh, with the IRS and the tax code and the tax laws. But mm-hmm. that's the biggest piece right there to get started is it's designed to help you keep your money. It's mm-hmm. designed for those that are actually stimulating the economy. Right. So whether you are a small business owner, whether you are a high level investor, everyday people with a nine to five job can still take advantage of lucrative things. So let's start with the uh, the foundational pieces of mm-hmm. uh, tax lingo, right? Yeah. Like we hear CPA, we hear tax strategists, we hear tax professional, tax counsel. Yeah. Uh, let's kind of break down just some of those high level uh, lingo words uh, so people understand who they're maybe working with right, right. now mm-hmm. and are they actually fulfilling in all of those different categories and or where do they need to potentially focus more of their time and energy, yeah. uh, whether it's a tax strategist, tax, uh, CPA, counsel, whatever. Uh, let's start with some of like the, the high level, uh, I guess you could say roles mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to, to taxes. Right. It's a great question. And over the last couple of years, this has always been around, but over the last couple of years, it's become especially popular, the, um, the idea of a tax strategist or the role of a tax strategist, because dwindling are the days of the simple compliance tax preparation model. That's really becoming commoditized. And with automations, that's going to be um, essentially going away because it's going to be much easier to file your own taxes. Of course, the IRS is looking at a ton of free filing, you know, softwares or processes that they can create. So the majority of people can put in a little bit of information, the W-2s or your tax documents that you receive every year, go straight to the IRS and the IRS will help you prepare your taxes. So the process of simple compliance is becoming commoditized and really is going away. And so where can CPAs, where can EAs, where can tax professionals bring in a lot of value and where is the uh, profession of, of tax and accounting going? And that is in the model of how can we teach you the tax code? How can we teach you how to leverage it to make more money, to save more money, to keep more of it in your pocket? And so that's a big difference and a big distinction that people need to be aware of nowadays is you might be working with your CPA that you've had for 20 years, 30 years, you know, since your parents referred them to you and they're 60 years old and you see them once a year and they're going to prepare your taxes. And that's great because, of course, you need to prepare your taxes, but you're not having an in-depth discussion and they're not taking the time to learn about your situation so that they can make highly customized suggestions because tax is not one size fits all. It's completely dependent on your specific situation. And so to have a tax strategist that's going to say, hey, you know, I see this year you're going to make an extra $300,000. Maybe if we reinvested some of those profits into this tax strategy or, oh, you just made $50,000 from, you know, your favorite crypto coin that shot up. Well, you have $30,000 of unrealized losses in your stock portfolio. Maybe we can save some taxes by cutting those losses, right? Tax loss harvesting. And so having a tax strategist in your corner, someone that you simply have a relationship with, you can call and you get an answer and you can come up with effective strategies. That is where tax professionals can really provide a lot of value. And that's where, um, to me, the industry leading professionals are 
going towards. They're going towards the advisory model, no longer the compliance model. So that's a really important one. That's the difference between, you know, simple tax professional compliance versus a tax strategist. Now to go into maybe a CPA versus an EA, there's not major differences, right? CPA has a little bit more stringent uh, qualification processes because they have a more comprehensive accounting uh, background where they're going to do a lot more schooling and tests on like corporate accounting. So if I need to go do the books, you know, for gap compliant C corporations that are publicly regulated and and traded, um, that's a CPA where they get less focus on pure taxes where EA is essentially a designation with the IRS where they're getting um, right, they're getting regulated directly with the IRS where they have to pass pure tax tests. So that's the difference between a CPA and EA. Um, to be what, honest- What does CPA mean and what does EA mean? Yeah, certified public accountant, right? Public accountant, public companies. EA is an enrolled agent, right? Enrolled agent with the IRS. So they don't work for the IRS, they work for the taxpayers, but they have to enroll at the agency, enrolled agent. Got it, got it. And so- what uh, what are the different type of taxes? Uh, you had mentioned that there are people that have paychecks coming in or maybe uh, they're a small business owner and they don't realize that they have these obligations, right? Friendly reminder for everyone listening. And then taxes are the biggest expense that you have in your lifetime. So understanding the biggest expense and or not necessarily you having all the answers. I think the key here is having the right person in your corner. And that's where you've done a great job with hundreds of your clients is Mm -hmm. not just talking to them once a year to say, okay, send me all your documents, send me all your income proof, send me all your expenses, all your receipts, all your this and that. And you're trying to scramble to file their taxes by the deadline or have to do an extension and then, you know, scramble and clean everything up. It's more of being proactive, being available. So if they're going to go, again, leave their nine to five to start their own business, or maybe they're going to make a business decision, hiring somebody, leasing an office space versus maybe buying one, you're available. Yeah. Right. So there's not always necessarily a tangible, I saved $1 or I saved $10,000. It's more of like that peace of mind. It's more than, uh, it's that business decision that affects you for, your lifetime. Exactly. So what are the different type of taxes? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's many, let's get into the different types of taxes and an important frame for this conversation is, are they getting rid of laws or are they adding laws? Are they continuing to add on to the, you know, 87,000 page internal revenue code, or are they adding, you know, more pronouncements and revenue rulings every single day, every single year? Of course they are. And so it's not just about, um, you know, being able to regurgitate the laws, but being able to see how the new past laws are going to affect your clients and being able to interpret that. It's going to be a long time before AI can interpret a law and understand the specific nuance and circumstances for our particular clients and implement effective strategies to both comply and take advantage of the incentives of that law for your clients. So that really is why accountants, high-level strategy-minded accountants, they're not going anywhere. Um, The different types of taxes, of course, there's some outside of the scope of the conversation, property taxes, right? If you own 
property, real estate, et cetera, you know, excise and use taxes are going to be for, you know, much bigger corporations. If you're dealing in, um, alcohol, um, oil, gas, minerals, stuff like that. There can be some excise use taxes. The ones that affect us every day as a business owner, as a W-2 employee, uh, as a real estate investor, is going to be things like sales taxes if you're selling physical goods. We have a lot of e-com clients and they have to you know, determine whether they qualify as having nexus within states and need to remit sales tax. There's a lot of strategy involved with sales taxes when you're selling a lot of physical products. There's also payroll taxes, which really does affect everybody because as a W-2 employee, you're paying half of the employment taxes, right? So social security, 6.45% for the employee, 6.45% for the employer, right? If you're self-employed, you're both the employee and the employer. So that's 12.9%. That's going to be a big bill if you're not mitigating that with a tax strategist. There's also Medicare, right? So that's what? 1.45% employee, 1.45% employer. That's going to be another big bill if you're not mitigating your self-employment taxes. That's box four and that's box six on your W-2 when you go to do your taxes every single year. So that's definitely a big tax that needs to be considered, especially by business owners. There's also income taxes, of course, which is the biggest, right? So that's zero to 37% is your income tax brackets. And everybody's paying income taxes. If you have income, you're paying income taxes. So that is the number one type of tax that myself as a tax strategist is helping my clients mitigate. But what if you live in states like Texas, Nevada, Florida, um, are they responsible for income tax? So there's no state taxes. Some of those states will have... uh, different types of taxes for business entities or other regulations, right? Like Texas might make up for it with increased property taxes, but those states, they are, I love doing taxes for clients in Nevada because there's almost never a filing. Whereas, you know, in Ohio, right? We know how Ohio goes. You might have a Ohio tax return for Pickerington, Ohio. I don't know where that is. And I don't know why they think they need to have their own tax return. No no shade to any Pickerington, Ohio citizens or politicians, but why do you have your own tax return? It's too much, right? So um, it can be complex and there can be considerations for state income taxes, uh, but primarily it's federally because that's gonna be zero to 37. Now, if you're in California, there's a lot to think about. If you're in New Jersey, if you're in Ohio, if you're in some of these high state tax states, there's plenty of strategy involved, but... Thank God for states, Nevada, right, Washington, um, quite a few others, Texas, Florida, that don't have that state income tax because they're, they're playing a game where they're stimulating a lot more economic activity by not having that state income tax. Shout out to Pickerington, Ohio. <laughs> Shout out to, to the o, OHIO. So, okay, so people are getting a paycheck. Taxes are coming out. They know that they think that it's good that they get a tax refund. In reality, that means that you basically just gave a 0% loan to the government uh, to go utilize however they wish. And then they give you that refund. Essentially, you overpaid in taxes through your your payroll. And the IRS, they're, they're, they're charging interest to you, right? If you owe them taxes and you don't pay them on time, they are charging you interest and potentially penalties if it's very late, right? But if you give them the tax-free loan throughout the year, you get $10,000 back when you could have gotten that back through adjusting your withholdings nine months earlier. They're not giving you any extra interest, 0%. So how do we how do we do that then? Like, what are some basic tax strategies that anyone and everyone can utilize today? Yeah, 
Right. So of course, just getting a basic understanding of how it works and an estimate of, okay, so if my withholdings are this much, right? And this is how much my income is. Am I going to get a refund throughout the year? Yeah. So I'm going to get 2,500 bucks back. Maybe I should adjust my withholdings a little bit so I can utilize that 2,500 throughout the year to grow my wealth more, right? The time value of money. That's a big one. Um, And I mean, getting a refund isn't always a bad thing. You'd rather get a refund than have to pay just looking at it at its face, but you can be more intelligent. You can be more strategic with your finances. So here's a couple additional strategies you can implement to try to pay less in taxes throughout the year. So number one, of course, is retirement accounts. Everybody can contribute to an IRA subject to limitations, which are possible to get around, right? With backdoor contributions, et cetera. Um, But retirement accounts, optimizing your retirement accounts, IRAs, 401ks, contributing. Now, again, this is a financial decision you have to make too because I prefer Roth. So I'd rather not even have the tax benefit up front because I can get the tax benefit on the back end by contributing to a Roth account. One of my favorites is the HSA, right? So a health savings account. If you have a high deductible health plan, you can contribute 3,600 a year, 7,200 on a, on a family plan. And I can deduct Thirty-six to seventy-two hundred dollars on my ten forty by saving some money for my health. Everybody has health expenses, especially if you have kids, especially if you're getting up there in age, and so you're very likely to use that money. Why not get a deduction for your health expenses that are inevitable? Let's say you're perfectly healthy and you turn 65 years old. What happens? Well, you don't lose the money with an HSA. It's not use it or lose it. It effectively turns into a retirement account that is taxed the same exact way as a 401k. So I've been contributing money into this HSA, getting a deduction. And finally, when I want to pull it out at 65, I've been perfectly healthy. It's essentially like I've been contributing to a 401k for the last however long I've been contributing, 30 years. But but you can also, depending on if it's a Roth IRA, uh, a traditional IRA, there's also uh, self-directed accounts as well, like a solo 401k, a self-directed IRA that people can, you know, set up with custodians online or they can oh, yeah. go to a company that will handle the logistics and, and charge them some money, of course. Totally. Um, This was really popular. This was really popular, especially when crypto was blowing up. I was starting to see a lot of people get interested in self-directed IRAs because then they could invest in cryptocurrency. There's no rule as to what exactly you can or cannot invest in. But when you're investing in a retirement account with your, um, you know, your traditional brokerages, Fidelity, Vanguard, they're not just going to say, oh yeah, just invest through into Bitcoin or whatever speculative asset you want through our platform. You can't do that. But but you legally can create a custodian of those assets and have a self-directed IRA. Now, you're not going to operate a sole proprietorship business out of it. You're not going to self-manage, you know, rental real estate in it. There's what's called the unrelated business income tax, UBIT taxes. So you have to be aware of certain rules with self-directed IRAs. But if you can passively invest in alternative assets far more successfully than investing in stocks, a self-directed IRA is an amazing idea and it's an amazing opportunity. So definitely recommend that. Yeah. So to simplify, it's, it's, uh, you know, one, who are you? How much do you make? What are your goals? What's your lifestyle? Uh, what are you trying to accomplish now and in the future? But ultimately it's getting systems and processes and strategies in place that 
you can diversify your money going out the door into a uh, 401k, into a uh, self-directed solo 401k where you're handling it and or a custodian uh, is for you, an IRA, a Roth, or whether it's again, self-directed, but you can strategically borrow against it, essentially borrow from it yourself at a low interest loan that if you pay back within a certain period, that's a topic for another Mm -hmm. day, uh, that you can go actively and or passively invest depending on the account, depending on, you know, other nuances as well. Same with the health savings, right? It's basically putting your money in different buckets that you can potentially access while you're contributing before you officially retire Mm -hmm. to compound at a faster rate with tax advantages. Now, what's the difference between a write-off and a deduction? They are essentially the exact same thing, right? So it's just a a jargon for a deduction, right? Deduction is the technical term. Whereas I buy something, I'm going to write it off, right? Which essentially means that I'm going to deduct it, right? So if we buy a dinner like we did last night, right? I put it on the business card. It's, you know, hey, I'm going to write this off because we're talking business, right? That's deducting my tax liability. Let's say someone's making $100,000 a year and uh, they have these write-offs and deductions, mm-hmm. whether it's putting it into these lucrative, I view it as like an investment account, right? right? The 401ks, retirement accounts, mm-hmm. the health savings accounts, the business meals and entertainment. Yeah. Um, but that's all reducing my tax liability or somebody that again is making X amount of money. Right. Let's say, I don't know, $30,000 is going out mm-hmm. in those buckets each year. That means that I would be taxed on 70000 Yep, exactly. That's the distinction that I was going to make because you're deducting it from your income, right? You're not deducting it from your tax liability. That's actually a credit. So we can get into the difference between a deduction and a credit as well. But the strategies that we're discussing right now are really ones that can be implemented by anybody. You could be W-2, you can make money from real estate, you can make money from you know capital gains or from your business. You can implement the strategies that we're talking about right now. We're gonna be talking about the business uh, deduction strategies, the meals deduction, right? That's for your business. It could also be for your rental. Can't be if you're you know a stock investor and you're not a day trader, Unfortunately, you can't take out another, you know, stock investor that's just doing long-term holds and deduct that, right? So that's going to be a business deduction that we're going to talk about here shortly. But the HSA, the retirement accounts, those are deductions that anybody can take. So another deduction that anybody can take. One more strategy that I have that's important for people to know is the difference between itemized deductions and standard deduction, right? So for 2023, I want to say the standard deductions around 12,950 per spouse. So if you're married filing jointly, it's twice that. You, what you do is you compare your itemized deductions to your standard deductions and whichever one's greater, you get to deduct that amount. And so a strategy related to this, of course, is just having itemized deductions, but it's also bunching your itemized deductions because some years you might have way more itemized deductions. Some years you might have way less itemized deductions and therefore you want to take the standard. So if you make $100,000 and you have medical expenses of $10,000, you can only deduct $2,500, right? Because you have to subtract that 7.5% of your $100,000. So if you have $5,000 of medical expenses, sorry, no deduction state and local taxes, which recently with the Tax Cut and Jobs Act got capped at $10,000. Sorry, California. Sorry, New York. You can't deduct $100,000 of state taxes you're paying. You can only deduct $10,000. 
if you live in California, New York, you're probably going to be screwed on taxes no matter what. That's for sure. Yeah. Exactly. But Trump made made sure that it was additionally so because that used to be 25000 if I remember correctly. After state and local taxes, there are there's mortgage interest, which another rule passed, you can only deduct mortgage interest on a mortgage up to $750,000. I don't know why they reduced it from a million dollars given that prices have increased so much, but on your personal residence, you can deduct the mortgage interest up to $750,000 of mortgage. Uh, so mortgage interest is the third itemized deduction. Next is um, charitable contributions. So you can deduct, depending on the type of charitable contribution, you could deduct to a you know private family foundation, or you could be contributing to a public charity, right? So the limits are different. You could be contributing, you know, cash. You could be contributing, you know, non-physical asset or physical assets like, you know, I contributed a car or I contributed, you know, a dresser, furniture to Goodwill. You can only deduct, I want to say 50% or 30% with non-cash goods. Whereas cash goods, you can contribute up to 60% of your adjusted gross income. So if I make $100,000, and I contribute $60,000 to my church, right? You can write off that entire $60,000. If I contribute a $60,000, excuse me, if I contribute a $60,000 car to my church, you can only deduct half of it, 30%, right? But you carry forward these charitable contributions for five years. So I could use it in the next year. Meaning make $100,000, I donate $60,000 to your favorite foundation, which is the Clinton Foundation. <laughs> or the Bill Gates Foundation exactly. so they can buy up more land and people in Hades, just kidding. Mm -hmm. uh, this is gonna get us canceled here. But uh, if, if I donate $60,000 to this charity or to a church to make 100,000, I'm only taxed on 40,000, mm -hmm. right? But if I have an, a whole laundry list of other itemized deductions yep. and other write-offs and things of that nature, uh, and it all nets out to zero, or maybe it nets out to uh, negative, like mm -hmm. negative income, mm -hmm. right? I can carry that charitable contribution forward where maybe I only need yeah. to use 30,000 of the 60,000. Mm -hmm. I can use the 30,000 in year two, right? And that will go all the way up to five years, correct? Yep, so that's the carry forward. And it is rare when you have more itemized deductions than income, that's for sure, but it is possible. Um, and that's the strategy is if you're gonna have a major medical procedure this year and you need to either make it on, you know, December 30th or January 2nd and you also just bought a house so you have a ton of mortgage interest that you paid this year, you're going to want to do that procedure in this year so that you have the most mortgage interest you're going to have for a while and the most medical expenses you're going to have for a while. It's a concept of bunching. Make sure that all of your itemized deductions are incurred in the same year so that you max out your itemized deductions because maybe the next year you don't have any medical expenses and you barely have any mortgage interest that you're paying and therefore you're just going to take the standard deduction, right? Any itemized deductions you have that don't get claimed because you claim the standard deduction are lost. So might as well have more in the year you're for sure gonna itemize and have less in the year that you're gonna take the standard deduction. So that's another major strategy that people with new homes, people with big medical expenses or significant charitable intent, that's a big strategy that they can implement. But if you are dying and you need surgery, call 911 and don't worry about <laughs> yeah, the tax yeah. advantages. <laughs> exactly. Makes the decisions that benefit your health. Yep. It's a lifestyle decision. So, okay. The, these are, these are great tactics that anyone and everyone can use. Um, what about what I refer to as a new digital economy? A lot of people are working from home. 
right? A lot of people bought bigger houses. Um, they might be renting, they might own. But if you work from home and you are a W-2 employee, mm -hmm. can you write off the computer you had to buy? Can you write off uh, any office expense? I'm sure it varies based on someone's specific situation. Yeah. Um, but what are some like everyday things that people can consider, whether they're a small business owner or they do have a, a W-2 job? Yeah. 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 Sorry to mess up the flow. Can I go back to a couple other things that I want to talk about? Cool. So there's there's a couple more there's a couple more strategies that I actually want to talk about as well. Which number one, uh, a really popular one is people will. I'll consistently get clients that are sold on tax benefits by non-tax professionals. I'd like to just say this. I talk to clients all the time that get sold on the um, electric vehicle tax credit to buy an electric vehicle or they'll buy a house because they think they're gonna get some crazy tax benefits that they get told by their lender and they don't actually understand the tax benefits. It just sounds really good when this non-tax professional sells them on a tax benefit. So I'd like to put a disclaimer out there and say, before you get sold on tax benefits from a non-tax professional, please consult with an actual tax professional. That's not to say the credit for electric vehicles is not valid because for cars for new electric vehicles, there actually is a $7,500 tax credit, right? Where you can get $7,500 back for purchasing an electric vehicle, but only if less than 200,000 of them have been sold. So like these new Rivians, for example, they're getting the $7,500 tax credit. A Tesla Model 3, no more tax credit. There's no benefit to purchasing, at least tax-wise, a Tesla Model 3, but there is to some of these new electric vehicles. So other credits as well that people can qualify, you know, renewable energy, right? Incentives for, you know, putting in solar panels or, or other things into your home, qualified renewable energy property. Um, that's a big one. And then- Which by the way, that's gonna be arguably- writing on the wall, like huge opportunities. Yeah. That's already presented itself in the last couple of years, but more of the agenda moving forward is the renewable energy. Yeah. Uh, and a reason why a lot of wealthy people are in those industries. Exactly. Um, is that what you think is kind of the biggest opportunity likely in the near future? I see that as a, a great opportunity because the government absolutely is incentivizing it. And I work with a lot of solar sales guys, a lot of solar sales companies. They're doing very well also. I'm not a scientist, right? I don't know how the actual financials work. I don't know how feasible it is in terms of, you know, science and the sun and all of those things. But in terms of government incentives, I'm aware of, and the government is certainly trying to push that hard with all of the credits. Taxes are an incentive. What are they incentivizing? Buying electric vehicles, buying renewable, you know, energy improvements in your home. So they're trying to, whether it works out, it's not going to be because the government doesn't want you to. It's going to be because it's not feasible and I can't comment on that. So that's a big one. Um, pretty much the last, the last point I want to make for the basics of taxes is that this is more than just a tax conversation. This is a comprehensive money conversation. I try to get this point across to my clients every time we talk is you need to be thinking not just about taxes and I'm here to help you make the best decisions when it comes to taxes, but more importantly, the best decisions when it comes to your life. So you need to be thinking about your finances. You need to be thinking about, you know, your estate plan. You need to be thinking about your insurance plan, risk mitigation. You can't have one conversation comprehensively without the other. So when you're doing your tax planning, have somebody there that 
either also knows about estate planning, insurance planning, financial planning, or complement your advisors with insurance planners and estate planners and financial planners because they all work together. You can make a tax move that's going to completely ruin your financial life. You know, you can make an insurance move that, you know, has a bunch of disastrous tax effects or you think there's going to be tax effects, um, benefits, there's really not. So make sure that you're having a comprehensive conversation about all of those topics because they're so interwoven. Yeah, let's talk insurance a bit and the, uh, the tax advantages and or things to consider. I always have a mindset of uh, not if, more when something happens, right? Like insurance is designed to protect you, protect your assets. And ultimately, uh, a lot of people, if I'm not mistaken, most people actually have the wrong insurance, at least on the real estate investing side. Right. And anyone that knows my story, I bought my first property in 2016. Um, You know, I had proper entity structure set up to protect my personal liability. In other words, an LLC. Uh, and thankfully, I had the right insurance. Right. Right. Uh, in other words, property caught on fire. Uh, thankfully, no one was injured. I lost essentially everything overnight, but uh, I had the, the correct insurance. So I was able to, after going through quite a few hurdles, you know, get paid out, get everything fixed. But most people don't understand that the insurance person that you are talking to, whether they're your friend or whether uh, they're not your friend and they got connected to you, if they're trying to sell you on a higher premium, let's say, it actually may be worth it. Now, we're not giving financial advice. We're not insurance experts. But number one, let's make sure that you're actually protected for what you're doing. But are there other additional benefits outside of just protecting the asset that you're insuring when it comes to taxes? Well, that is the main thing, right? So keep the main thing. The main thing is making sure that insurance is used for risk mitigation and covering potential losses. There's plenty of misconceptions about taxes and insurance out there because these policies do get pushed so hard because insurance agents are making great commissions on selling them. What policies? So I'm talking most specifically about life insurance, like whole life policies, where I'm not saying that there are no tax strategies related to this and their deductibility in terms of being able to lend against it, in terms of, you know, private placement life insurance, key man life insurance. I'm not going to get deep into the details because it's a, you know, specific conversation per the needs of every individual and business owner. Um, But a lot of these tax benefits are to an extent overblown or overemphasized by the people trying to sell the policies. Now, here is where the major tax benefit for insurance comes in, is the cash value growth is tax-free. Kind of like a retirement account is when you invest into your whole life insurance policy and you know you get a cash value life insurance policy and it's growing, eventually you're getting a five, you know, six, seven, eight percent return on the cash that you've invested in there year over year. Well, you're not paying taxes on that eight percent growth. So it's not taking your eight percent growth down to, you know, five or six percent. So I'm also not an individual that generally says, no, that's a horrible strategy by people just trying to sell the policies. It's what are their, excuse me, it's what are their legitimate uses, right? And do you actually fit for that situation? Whereas, you know, everybody is, you know, a, a, a nail to the hammer insurance advisor. Whereas, you know, some people are a good fit for insurance. 
a lot of people are not. If you're not making a lot of money, you don't need to have a whole life insurance policy. If you don't have a lot of cash to invest, you don't need a whole life insurance policy. If you have major liability, right? If you have a family that depends on your income significantly, you probably need a term life insurance policy because if something happens to you, they're screwed. There is major liability on your family that no longer has their breadwinner. So life insurance is really important. And then at the higher levels of income and of cash, using a whole life insurance policy as a personal bank is a completely valid strategy. It is a highly effective strategy where you get that, you know, five to 8% guaranteed return every year. You don't have any cash value for the five years that it's essentially vesting, but once you have that cash value and it's growing at five to 8% and it's working as your bank account and you can lend against it and you're not incurring any taxable events, that is a completely valid strategy. And so it's got to fit for the right person. And unfortunately, most people just aren't a good fit for a strategy like that because you got to be higher income, higher net worth. Yeah, this is a whole other topic. We'll have a show on this. Um, but essentially what you're saying in short to simplify is someone that is basically paycheck to paycheck, right? It's probably in your best interest to maybe get a retirement account, start doing these other strategies that you mentioned with big tax advantage, health savings, 401k, uh, IRA, these different things. But what you've recognized when clients are coming to you is they're contributing $200 a month, let's say, just as a hypothetical number to a whole life insurance because someone sold them on the idea that the cash value of this after five years is going to be $100,000 and you're going to be able to borrow against that to go buy real estate properties. Right. But in reality, this person needs that $200 yeah, a they're month. They're accumulating credit card debt yeah, and interest. Yeah, they have you know massive 20 plus percent credit card debt. They can't go get an investment property. They can't go have a dinner with a friend. Yeah. They can't go do these things for their lifestyle. So I fully, fully align with that yeah. when it comes to uh, the mindset around money, Yeah. right? The mindset around taxes, the mindset around lifestyle, which is, hey, look, at the end of the day, my brain, I have my brain program where, yes, you have to have good foundational pieces like saving, like planning. But in reality, I think a better mindset is you need to go earn more, Yeah. right? Exactly. You need to go earn more. You need to create more value instead of, immediately jumping to how am I getting the tax advantage? I think a good mindset is how do you close more sales in your job so you're more valuable for your company so you can make more money? A damn good problem to have is you're making more money and you're paying more taxes. Then you can start leveraging these different uh, strategies and and whatnot. Whereas again, coming back to this example, that's what you recognize. Instead of contributing $200 to a whole life mm -hmm. to maybe leverage that in five years, hey, how about a term life, yeah. right? Maybe contribute 20 bucks a month because your family is relying on your income yeah. and they will have something if something happens to you, if you, if you pass away, right? Exactly. Uh, so that's a great point that you bring up. Um, yeah. But hey, maybe if you do have that ability to use a whole life or use a IUL, an indexed universal life insurance policy, you can throw $200 towards that account every single month. You know that you can turn that into uh infinite banking, yep. right? Is like the, the lingo that people like to use exactly. terminology where you're borrowing against that cash value one right. day tax-free. Yep. And when you're borrowing from it and you're paying interest on it, it's essentially paying yourself back. Right. So you can go buy an investment property, fix it up, rent it out, refinance, pay that account back. 
rinse and repeat. Yep. Right. So it's another tool in the toolbox. But I like that. I like that you say, hey, look, is that $200 a month actually helping you? Is that couple thousand dollars a year actually helping you? In yeah. reality, for most people, it's probably not. Right. When they're first getting started making money and uh, the other use case of that $200 could attack high interest credit card debt. Exactly. And this is why it's so important to have these comprehensive discussions, either self-educated or with professionals, because a couple hours of education or shortcutting that couple hours by getting some intelligent people that know about this around you, you're going to be able to make those important decisions, right? Because that's how I frame my discussions with my clients is, you know, I'll get asked, oh, how should I make this move? And I can break down the tax effects of this move, but even more important than the tax effects of this business decision you're making is how is it going to affect your finances and how is it going to affect your lifestyle, right? Taxes are a tertiary concern when you're making major financial decisions. For example, imagine you buy, we're going to talk about Airbnb short-term rentals. Imagine you buy a $500,000 Airbnb short-term rental and it helps you save $5,000 in taxes this year. But- now you have to spend 500 hours a year managing this Airbnb because your tenants are crazy and you couldn't find a property manager and everything keeps breaking and you're losing $10,000 a year, but you made this decision because your tax advisor told you you'd save $5,000 in taxes and you just focused on that completely. Well, you just completely missed you know, the forest for one little tree. You made a decision on taxes that negatively affected your finances and your lifestyle. That's a much worse decision. So it's really important to really understand um, you know, comprehensively, again, how these decisions affect your life. So that's really the, the, some of the best tax advice that I can give. Mm-hmm. I've got one more piece of tax advice that I think will lead us into um, the rest of a good conversation, which is taxes being an incentive program, understand that the majority of those 87,000 pages that teach you not how to pay taxes, but how to save taxes, the majority of those pages discuss business owners and real estate, right? And so most of the incentives for saving taxes are for those entrepreneurs and are for those real estate investors. We covered some general things that everybody should know in terms of strategies you can take advantage of and mindsets to have when you think about your taxes and your money. Now, if you really want to save some taxes, you need to know and you need to dip your toes into the world of real estate and entrepreneurship. Now, before we do that, what are some other things that people... Uh, need to consider. I know you have a pretty extensive background prior to taxes. Kind of goes hand in hand, from my understanding, with uh, with trusts. Are there things that people can do on the uh, protect what you have yeah. first, and uh, in, in keeping what you have first? Again, taxes, a trust. I know that's a whole other conversation, a whole other topic. But should everyday people, everyday small business owners, have a trust? Yes. So the trust conversation can vary from basic to extraordinarily complex. Of course, every billionaire in America and the world is utilizing trusts for tax and estate planning for making sure that their money moves the way they want it to move. But at the very basic level, you should know what a trust is. You should know what kind of opportunities and advantages trusts provide. 
And if you have any assets at all, and you don't want the government dipping their fingers and their hands into your estate, you should have at least a revocable living trust. Because if you've gone through the process of probate, you realize how important that is. Because what you're going to get from a revocable living trust is simply you can avoid probate and you can avoid the government process of them divvying up, divvying up your estate and then giving it to the heirs as they see fit, right? You can have a will and you can say you want your assets to go here, but ultimately the government, right? With a will, the government decides where that those assets go, right? So how, how much do uh, those trusts usually cost? I'm sure it depends on yeah. each people. And, and again, who's like a good, give me like a hypothetical fit. People are making roughly this amount of money. They yeah. have this amount of assets. Like, how do you know it's a good decision to go pay X amount of your time and energy and resources to go set up a trust? So there are plenty of horror stories related to revocable living trusts that people should aspire to avoid. So for example, a family friend passing away. He's a neighbor, known him for 15 years, and he's unfortunately on his deathbed. And he doesn't have anything written down. He doesn't have any will any directive for how he wants his estate to be settled. There's a home worth, let's just say $500,000 and he's got two heirs, right? So he doesn't have anything written down. And if he passes away in that same state, then the government essentially gets to decide how that house gets split up and they might run up the bill and they might take a year to decide. So if he gets a will, right, the government has less power to decide how that gets split up because they have to follow his will, but they can still make it take 12 months by deciding to, you know, listen to everybody's opinion. And I'll walk in there and say, hey, hold on, we were good friends. And I have a piece of paper right here that says, you know, he wants me to have this house. So I know I'm not one of his kids, but he wrote down on this piece of paper, it's signed, you know, that I get the house and the government gets to decide that, right? So instead- So, so if someone mm -hmm. owns- someone has a $500,000 house, they own it free and clear, they have two kids mm -hmm. and the two kids have a great relationship with their, their father, let's mm -hmm. say. Hypothetically, the court's gonna say, hey, John, you get 250,000 and Jim, you get 250,000. But that's a very, 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 very slim chance. In other words, it's gonna be court fees. It's gonna take yeah. time. It's gonna be Jim and John get mad at each other. And Jim didn't have a relationship with the yep. father. and. And then Anthony comes in and says, hey, actually I was the neighbor, I mowed the yard. Yeah. And you came in with the real paper signed by him and or a fake one, that throws a whole other wrench. Now we got legal counsel, now we got extended court fees. Yep. Now we have a house that's in the market crashes um, and the, the market or the, the house is condemned now, it's only actually worth 250,000, where does this go? Exactly. That's, that's the horror story that you're explaining, right? Exactly, and that happens so commonly because no one thinks they're gonna die. And then all of a sudden they're faced, oh, I'm dying tomorrow. Unfortunately, I just got, you know, found out I've had cancer for six months and I'm gonna pass away tomorrow and I only have time to write down where I want my assets to go. I don't even have time to get a revocable living trust. You gotta be thinking about a revocable living trust now because I'm sorry to tell you, you are gonna die at some point. And what the revocable living trust is going to do is it's going to avoid that government process of probate. And so you write into your 
trust where you want your assets to go. You establish who the executor or the trustee of the state is. And then that person oversees the process of distributing your assets to your heirs. Lower fees, lower headache, less arguments, no government involvement. That is what a revocable living trust will do. And it might cost an additional $500 to $1,000 compared to a will, but the headache, the time, and the additional fees you're going to save by doing so are 10 to 100x of $1,000 of additional cost. Yeah, I mean, a couple thousand dollars to say where maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars is going is, is extremely powerful. Um, but yet the time... Right. Yeah. And the certainty and the confidence that you're not going down the whole litigation route or the government deciding what is in your best interest, which yeah. I think it's safe to say they uh that's usually usually not top of mind in most in most scenarios, but that's a, a topic for another day. <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit more on the, the entrepreneur side. Let's talk a little bit more on the uh the beginner level stuff. I think yeah. a lot of things that we see online, you got guys like me that have a G wagon. We're talking about section 179. This is a write-off and people buying yachts and buying planes and uh, setting up LLCs and S Corp. Mm. And uh, you can write your watch off and you can do this, this, this. And the, it's, it's a lot, right? It's right. like so much information is a little dangerous, mm. especially when it comes to taxes and I want to start with what is step one? Maybe people already have a business, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe people are considering setting up another business or just getting started in entrepreneurship. Yeah. Give me the, the one through 10 steps. Give me the A to Z. Yeah. What do people need to do to get started? Absolutely. And so before we get into the steps of getting started, your business entity and tax basics. Let's go over my favorite myth to bust, which I see all the time. I mean, we could go on TikTok right now on tax TikTok and come up with five hours worth of content, just dissecting the myths that you'll see um, in that content. But the number one biggest myth that I see for business owners is that LLCs save you taxes, right? LLCs magically unlock all these deductions. Oh, step one, get an LLC. Step two, deduct, you know, your, your, all of your dates with your girlfriend. No, that's not exactly how it works. An LLC, I want to explain that an LLC is an entity with the state, right? An LLC is a business entity that you register with the state. What does an LLC stand for? LLC stands for limited liability company. LLC does not stand for limited tax company, right? limited liability company. So what is it going to do? It is going to limit your liability if you comply with the regulations. This is something that I see most people unknowingly not do. So what are those regulations? Number one, you register with the state, your articles of organization, you can file it online. You don't have to pay LegalZoom $400. The only reason you're doing that is because you feel uncertain about knowing what you have to do but it is, it is actually very simple. You file your articles of organization with the state. You go to the IRS website. You apply for an EIN from the IRS. Once, once the articles of organization and the name is approved, correct? Exactly. Once, once the name is approved and you're registered with the state, you then get the EIN. I do recommend... Which in short, an EIN is 
basically like a social security number, but for your business. For your business, exactly. Employer identification number. I do recommend, especially if this is going to be a very successful business, if you're doing real estate deals, if you're doing partnerships, if you're going to have any kind of, you know, bigger business, you should get an operating agreement. You should consult with an attorney and you should get a effective operating agreement, especially if you're in a partnership, especially if you're doing real estate deals. So I do recommend that. But if you're not even sure if this business is going to work out and you're just opening an LLC because um, you just want to get started and this is going to create serious hesitancy and anxiety in you to get an operating agreement, you know, find a template or just kind of skip over that part for right now. I'm not recommending that. It's not legal advice, but you know, don't worry too much about the operating agreement. So once you get that set up, you have your LLC in place. All right, you got your LLC. What do you do next? You open up a business bank account. You bring those articles of organization, your EIN, it's called the SS4 letter from the IRS, and you bring in some personal identification to the bank and you open up a bank account in your business's name. This is really important if you want to protect your assets, if you want to avoid any trouble with the IRS, because if you commingle your personal and your business funds, if you're paying for business expenses on your personal cards, if you're paying for your personal expenses on your business cards, which I see, unfortunately, most of my clients do, at least when they get started with us, right? You are going to lose your ability to protect your assets because under legal examination in a lawsuit, in an audit, if they see that you are willy-nilly commingling your personal and business funds, they're going to realize that you do not respect the corporate veil, which must be established to protect your assets. And they're going to say, well, there is no corporate veil. Therefore, his personal assets or her personal assets are their business assets and their business assets are their personal assets. Therefore, let's take those personal assets because clearly it's the same as their business assets. Zero limited liability whatsoever. So what would be a, a situation like that? Like, Give, give me a situation where uh, is it like if you get audited? Is it if you're in a litigation, a lawsuit? Like where would it be uh, a situation that could could end badly? Yeah. Mainly in the litigation, right? So if you if you get sued and you're going to run into a hundred thousand um, dollar, you know, penalty that you have to pay out of your LLC, right? Rental property. Let's say you have a rental property and one of your tenants slips and falls, and now they're suing you, right? Because there's no wet floor sign. Silly example. And they are coming after you for $50,000. Well, you only have $20,000 of you know, equity in your rental property, LLC in cash, right? And so you don't have that additional $30,000 that they're trying to take from you. Well, let's look at their financials. Oh, well, they've been commingling their personal and their business funds. They've been paying for you know, personal expenses using their business card and they're able to deduct you know, rental expenses by paying them on their personal card. There's no corporate separateness there. And so because of that, they're gonna dip into your personal bank account and take that additional $30,000 to cover these damages, right, to the to the uh, plaintiff. Even if you have an LLC set up, hypothetically. Yes, even if you have an LLC set up. So things that can pierce the corporate veil, not commingling personal or business funds, not properly capitalizing the business, putting enough money into the business, right, not maintaining your annual um, information reports. There's a couple others. Those are some big ones that are super easy to do, frequently missed. 
Okay, so what if you're traveling and you forgot your personal credit card and you just have a business card, right? Like I would say, I'm going to go out and say 100% of small business owners and people that are in business, 100% have used personal funds for business, business for personal. Now, obviously that's take that with a grain of salt. Um, I know I have, right? Like it's just natural. Like you're just like, oh wait, I accidentally handed my personal card to pay for the business. You get it, right? Yeah. So what are some things that people can do so they're not sweating bullets right now? Yeah. Um, Can they document it? Can Can they go back and explain what this was for? Exactly. In case they would get audited in case a situation like that would come up? Yes, absolutely. And so as long as it's not a chronic activity, then there are ways to mitigate the risk that comes with that, right? By either documenting it, you know, really, really documenting it is the solution to that issue. We're going to write down, all right, you know, now the business is going to compensate you for incurring, you know, a business expense on your personal card or vice versa, right? The the business is going to give you a benefit of, you know, paying for some personal expense um, or it's a, a additional distribution that you took, or even just the fact, all right, I lost, I didn't have any of my cards. I did it one time. You know, that right there will have some weight, you know, in court. Now this is not legal advice, but doing it one time on accident based out of extreme circumstances where you're not going to do it again, that's a completely different picture, of course, than, oh, I did that every day for the last year. And I didn't even realize there was a corporate veil or I just didn't care, right? That's completely different than accidentally doing it one time. So it's not the end of the world. It's not going to guarantee, you know, doom for you, but doing it every single time, not trying, not respecting the corporate veil whatsoever will come back to bite you and in the back if, if you ever have, you know, the threat of a lawsuit or legal liability. So let's back up a little bit with, um, because entities and LLCs and things can get very expensive very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, this is kind of along the lines of legal. So uh, if you can't really shed too much light on it, or you can just share your experiences and obviously, as always, consult with your own counsel. Um, Let's say that you have multiple businesses, you have multiple properties. Should people be setting up LLCs for each of those uh, assets, business assets, as far as businesses are operating? Um, and should they be setting up LLCs for each of those properties? I know it has a little bit to do, if not a lot to do with insurance, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, but who's managing all this paperwork? Who's Do you have to keep paying for these uh, expenses every single year? Uh, when I say managing, get direct to the point, call it a registered agent. Yep. Should you be handling it? Should someone else? Yeah. Should I be filing these entities in the state of Ohio where I'm doing my business activities? Should I be going to... Delaware? Should I be going to these other states like Wyoming that has yeah. these tax advantages? Shed some light on on some of those common questions Absolutely, uh, I've seen. Yeah. That's a, another big advising point is clients come to us frequently with the wrong entity structure. It's like, oh, you know, this attorney sold me on this S corp for my real estate properties or my cryptocurrency. I've had that before in an S corp. I'm like, why? He said it would save me taxes. I'm like, how? can't remember. <laughs> I'm like, no, absolutely not. And when you sell it, it's going to be a huge pain in the butt. Or if you try to take it out of the S corp, it's going to be a huge pain. So the idea with entities that I advise my clients on is you want to keep it as simple as possible. 
Sometimes you do have to have additional entities. Sometimes there is benefit of having additional entities, but you absolutely want to keep it as simple as possible. So I'm not going to blanket recommend an S-Corp until you reach a certain income threshold that you're benefiting from. I'm not going to recommend a C-Corp except in very specific circumstances, right? I'm not going to recommend you have 10 different LLCs unless you absolutely have to. Let's get specific. With real estate, right? You do not have to have a separate LLC for every separate rental property. Should you? Maybe so. It depends how much equity you have in the rental property. It might depend on what location those rental properties in. If you have, you know, five in California and you have, you know, five in five different states, maybe you get one LLC in each of those specific states and you get one LLC in California. So it is a very specific conversation. Of course, always consult with your legal advisors. I appreciate the disclaimer, Um, but you do want to keep it as simple as possible because you do have those annual filings every single year. If you're in the state of California, you are paying at least 800 bucks a year for your LLC, which is excessive in my opinion, but you do get certain benefits out of having certain entity structures if you are in the right circumstances. And so this is a really important point that I go over with my clients up front is what are your current entities and is there any restructuring necessary? Because having one S Corp, right, that might own two different LLCs is a much better entity structure than having two separate S-Corps, if you have two cash flowing businesses, right? So that is a huge point of advising that we start with with our new clients. So hypothetically, if you're just getting started in most scenarios, if not all scenarios, it makes sense to elect the entity as an LLC because you can always change it to an S-Corp, a C-Corp, if I'm not mistaken. So answer that for us if you can, please. And then two, break down at like a high level uh, the different type of tax entities yep. and when it's in your best interest to use an S corp versus a C corp and, and why right. not. So start with number one, what should I, I have no idea how successful my business is going to be. I technically don't even know what my business is going to be yeah. uh, and how many employees I'm going to have, how much money I'm going to make, wh- where should we start? And then when do we need to start restructuring the entities? Yep. So let's make a distinction between entities in between tax elections, right? Before the LLC became a thing around the 90s, there was liability, excuse me, limited partnerships, limited liability partnerships. Um, There was corporations, C corporations, S corps. There was all these different entities to choose from. And then came the holy grail invention, which was the LLC, right? So the LLC, the limited liability company is the blank entity structure that's recommended for 99% of, you know, business owners and investors because it has so much flexibility. So that is entity structure. It's almost always just get an LLC. You don't need a LP. You don't need an LLP. You don't need any, you know, complex entity structure because the LLC can afford essentially all of those benefits. Now, what's a more variable conversation is your tax classification. Unfortunately, an LLC can elect any tax classification. There are four. So common misconception is LLC is a tax classification. I go, how are you taxed? How's your entity taxed? And they go, oh, it's taxed like an LLC. Well, there's four different ways that your LLC can be taxed. Number one is as a sole proprietorship, which 
is when your LLC is what they call a disregarded entity. You disregard the LLC, it's like you are a sole proprietor, which means your single member LLC, you file your taxes on your Schedule C or if it's a rental property on your Schedule E and there's no difference in terms of tax reporting between having an LLC and not having an LLC. That's sole proprietorship taxi, tax classification. Second is a partnership. This is kind of like a sole proprietorship, except you have partners. So you can have two to you know, a million partners and the taxes get allocated to each partner based on their ownership percentages. So that is taxed about the same as a sole proprietorship. Next is the S Corp, right? The S Corp is a, a subchapter S corporation where it's not subject to double taxation like a C Corp, which we're going to get into, um, but it also provides benefits for the self-employed greater than sole proprietorship taxation. So the advantages of an S Corp are that you do not pay self-employment taxes on the entire net income. So let's go a little deeper into that. We talked about payroll taxes at the beginning of the podcast. Payroll taxes equal self-employment taxes, equal employment taxes, equal you know, Social Security, Medicare taxes, FICA, uh, FUDASUDA taxes. And so when you are a sole proprietor and you own a business or you're a partner in a partnership and you own a business, your entire net income, you pay self-employment taxes on, you pay payroll taxes on, you pay FICA taxes on. Again, they're all the same. When you have an S corp, you do not, you do not period, right? So if you have $100,000 of net income in your business as a sole proprietor, that net income of $100,000 gets taxed at 15.3%, the 12.4 around there for your self-employment taxes, 2.9 for Medicare, sorry, 12.4 for social security, 2.9 for Medicare, 15.3% taxes you're paying on your $100,000 net income. $15,300 $15,300 with an S corp zero. So You'll get those numbers straight. Those TikTokers will get you. <laughs> now there are certain compliance requirements with the S corp. So you don't actually end up saving that much money. You actually have to pay yourself as a W2 employee, right? So you are a W2 employee of your S corporation. So a, a better example is you pay yourself a W2 salary of $50,000. Right, your net income before your W two is a hundred thousand dollars. So you only pay that fifteen point three percent on fifty thousand dollars of your W two. So really, the tax savings are fifty thousand dollars that you don't pay of your net income that you don't pay in salary times that fifteen point three percent. So by having this S corp, you just saved seven thousand six hundred fifty dollars. And so there's there's probably like an income range, right? Like let's say you're just getting started, you're you know, setting up an LLC and you are electing for that LLC to be taxed as a sole proprietor, let's say. Hypothetically, if I'm understanding this correctly, once you start making, let's say, above X amount of money, that is when you need to elect that following year or following years. Hey, I'm not going to be taxed as a sole proprietor, a sole prop anymore with this LLC that I set up or LLCs. I'm going to elect in this specific tax year or moving forward, I'm going to be taxed as an S-corp because I started paying myself 
which by the way, can you do that at any given time? Can you just like, hey, starting next month, I'm on track. I'm making $100,000 from this LLC that I set up. Um, I'm going to start paying myself $6,000 of W-2. And then the remaining, what is that? Six, like 72,000, right. right? Over a 12 month period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, the remaining 30, 40K, I'm going to pay the, as the a 15, distribution. Yeah, as a distribution. So when do you make that decision? Yeah, so you... There is relief under a revenue proclamation for late election of an S-Corp. You should have the intent to do it beforehand and there should be reasonable cause as to why you filed late, but there is relief. Um, Not recommending it. I recommend you have the intention by March 15th of the year of the election. That is the deadline. You need to be filing that Form 2553 for your single member or partnership LLC or C corporation. Um, And you need to file that by March 15th of the year of the election. So for 2023, we sent off plenty of 2553s by March 15th for our clients who want to be taxed as an S corporation. You know, some that got told they should be an S corporation by their previous accountant. And then they come to us in August and they go, I thought I was an S corp this year. The IRS haven't gotten back to me. Um, from my 2553, I thought we sent in, you know, I'm freaking out. I thought we we're going to be an S-Corp this year. Can we still be an S-Corp? Yes, we can get the late filing relief. So that is that is absolutely possible. Now, when should you be an S-Corp? Because that's a 100% accurate point is, does it make sense for everybody? Because the simple example that I laid out sounds like, oh, I either save taxes or I don't save taxes, why would anyone not be an S-corporation? There are reasons why someone would not be an S-corporation. And so here are the disadvantages of an S-corporation that are not great for TikTok, unfortunately. Hopefully this still becomes a real. Um, The downsides of the S-corp are that there's additional administrative requirements. So having a single member LLC is like playing in JV. You know, the stakes are a little bit lower. S-corp, you're now playing on varsity, right? And so you have to have your annual shareholder meeting every single year. It's far more important that you're maintaining your corporate records. There's a higher level of record keeping when it comes to corporations versus limited liability companies. So you do need to comply with those administrative requirements. Plus, as I mentioned, the W-2 salary which means you either need to figure out payroll or you need to pay a professional to figure out payroll on your behalf and pay it at least quarterly, mm-hmm. right? And so that can come at an expense and that can have some additional time involved. So there's also the requirement to file an S corporation return. And if you're a single member LLC and now all of a sudden you have to file an S corporation return, that's going to be an additional expense. That might add 800 to $1,000 of expense for your accounting and taxes throughout the year. Also, if you have gross revenue over $250,000 in your business, you also have to file your balance sheet, which means you have to track your assets, your liabilities, and your equity. So you have to track your cash balance throughout the year. You have to track how much you paid yourself as a distribution, which is different than W-2 salary. You need to track how much you paid yourself in W-2 salary and you need to track how much you paid yourself as a distribution. So if you pay yourself 6K a month, but you're also sending yourself 4K a month as a distribution, you process 6K a month through your payroll and you have a $72,000 W-2, but ultimately you, you got 
$120,000 throughout the year because 4K a month came through as distributions. You also have to track those 4K of distributions and report those throughout the year, right? So you have a higher level of accounting that you have to follow as well. And so the sweet spot of complying with those requirements that comes at an additional cost where that cost is way less than the tax savings you receive is about 60,000 of net income to let's say 260,000 of net income because there's a there's a top level uh, because the marginal benefit of your S corp also reduces and the reason why is because those social security taxes those are capped once you pay $160,000 of uh, wages to yourself you no longer are paying social security taxes. And that goes up every year. So don't quote me on exactly $160,000. But once you go above that, you're no longer paying that 12.4%. Uh, now you're only paying the Medicare taxes. So the marginal benefit of uh, paying yourself W2, less W-2 salary is way less once you surpass the social security threshold. Yeah, that makes sense. So in short, it's really the comparison that you gave paying yourself a $50,000 salary and then getting taxed on the payroll tax and the remaining 50,000 for somebody making 100,000, making that decision to go be taxed as a sole prop versus an S corp will save them give or take seven to eight grand. Yep. But you got to go set up a payroll system. Mm -hmm. You have to set up tracking systems. You have to uh, just put in more resources and time and, and capital. So in reality, you're likely not netting, let's say 8,000. Now, sure, are those additional things maybe a write-off a deduction? Sure, maybe. Uh, but just apples to apples comparison, let's say, in reality, you might actually only be saving 3,000. So you're like, not even worth my time, my energy, my resources. I'm gonna wait till next year because I'm probably gonna make 150. Yep. And that's actually gonna save me, you know, 10, 15,000, totally worth it. I'm gonna continue to expand. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? The, the net marginal benefit in reality may not be worth all the time and resources you have to integrate into the business, right? Exactly. The benefits are variable based off of your net income. The administrative costs are fixed and you want to do an S-corp. At the moment, those variable cost benefits or savings benefits exceed the fixed costs of additional administrative requirements. Generally, we see that around fifty dollars to $60,000 of net, net income and higher. When you're at, if you're at one fifty dollars to one sixty of net income, I'm like, we need to get an S corp ASAP, and if your reasonable compensation is eighty thousand dollars, right, and you make one hundred sixty of net income, you make that spread eighty k times point one five three is what you know twelve thousand dollars minus let's say three k of administrative expenses, nine thousand dollars of tax savings. If you're in the sweet spot of one hundred fifty k of net income, there's a lot of clients we have you know right at that sweet spot. There's two more main things that I want to touch on here, at least in, in this show today which is what are some simple resources that we can track all this shit, right? Like yeah. We set up the LLC. We set up uh, the articles of, of organization and the EIN. We went to the bank and or banks and we set up the business bank accounts. We went and set up business debit cards and business credit cards who were tracking, okay, this is a personal expense. This is a business expense. Again, conversation for another day. If you're traveling for personal and business, we'll, we'll dive into more of the, the lovely yeah. strategies in another show. Uh, but we're bringing in some revenue, yeah. right? Uh, we're putting everything on the business cards versus the personal. 
uh, we are the registered agent or we hire our legal counsel to do it or a third party online to handle the paperwork to make sure that the filings each year, everything aligns. But how are we tracking all this stuff? What are some some resources that are very simple, effective, that make sure that not, not if, I'd like to have a mindset, when you need to explain yourself to your CPA, you need to explain yourself potentially to the IRS, you need to be able to see exactly what is going on in your in your financials, in your business and or businesses and in investments. Where are we tracking all this? Yeah. And I'd like to add two other individuals that you may need to be accountable to. Number one is, what if you want to sell your business? Number two is, what if you want to know where your finances went throughout the year? It's simply a good idea to track your accounting, to track your finances. There's many reasons why you should have good accounting processes. Good accounting starts at the very beginning, right? Number one, which we've emphasized multiple times is not commingling your personal and business funds. If you give me a list of transactions and I know they're all business, I can account for it and I can account for it very fast. If you give me a list of all your transactions and I don't know whether they're business or they're personal, it's gonna take me a long time and I'm gonna run up that accounting bill. Not because I necessarily want to, but because I have to sit there and make decisions as to the intent of your financial transactions, I wasn't there. I don't know. So being strict about that upfront is the number one best rule for easy, efficient, low-cost accounting. Second is connecting your accounts to QuickBooks, right? QuickBooks Self-Employed. Whatever accounting software you want to use, connect your accounts to that software so that they begin importing transactions from the beginning of your business. Then Every you can, single account? Every single business account. Personal accounts, do not connect your personal accounts, please. Because that's, you know, then we're going to have to exclude all those transactions. Just waste a lot of time. If you have business expenses on your personal card or account, they are deductible, but give that to your accountant. Don't give them your personal bank statements and say, go find them, you know, because it's going to be 5% of your transactions and we're going to have to go through 100% of your transactions. And you won't, as a, as a CPA, um, maybe you can speak for all of them and, and or maybe just yourself, but- if someone did set up all their personal accounts and business accounts to QuickBooks or they did use, they did commingle funds uh, and it's very evident this personal card that they used uh, was for a business, can you still write that off? You can absolutely still write it off, yes. And QuickBooks Self-Employed actually does have a feature where if it is commingled, you can go in and you can label each one as business or personal. So it's actually pretty convenient through QuickBooks Self-Employed. You know, my clients on a you know little bit of a higher level and especially our S-Corps, C-Corps, et cetera, you're, you're not using QuickBooks Self-Employed. I do not recommend QuickBooks Self-Employed unless you're, you know, kind of a small business that might have commingled your personal funds with your business funds. That's when QuickBooks Self-Employed is going to be fine at 15 bucks a month. I recommend recommend you pay the 50, you know, 55 bucks a month for QuickBooks Essentials so that we can properly track your financials because people look at accounting and finance. This is a common myth as well. People look at finances and accounting as a cost center where if you have good financial information, good accounting information, it can become a profit center because you're going to be making better decisions and you're going to be saving a lot more taxes than you were in the past because you have good data to analyze. So, have QuickBooks, right? Make sure that all your transactions are being properly accounted for and are being reconciled monthly and be proactive about this. We pick up a lot of clients every single year that need, you know, a year and a half worth of accounting done and it's a pretty big bill 
when they don't realize, you know, how important this is and how much time it really takes. So have QuickBooks, connect all your business accounts, make sure that we're reconciling, you know, monthly or quarterly. And when you have that, doing taxes is a breeze. Looking at your financials and deciding on effective tax strategies, making effective financial decisions is easy. A seller can analyze your business and ask good questions that makes the deal more efficient and you make more money is such a significant benefit if you're in that stage. So having really good accounting is super important. And your team handles all that, right? Like outside of just being the traditional CPA and accountant that, you know, we come to you and we just dump this on your, on your, uh, on your desk and say, figure it out. And then you come back to us with 37 trillion questions and it's back and forth and back and forth. And uh, it's not really a fun process because ultimately what happens, at least what I've discovered with people in my network and, you know, years ago experience I had myself is like, why am I paying this much in taxes? I should have been told, well, the blame is on you, right? right. Like uh, core philosophy of my message in life and business is in your victim mentality. Like you can't blame yeah. your CPA that he didn't tell you about this cool tax strategy that you learned about on YouTube because you just handed him a mess. Yeah. So either one, you set up the QuickBooks accounts and you reconcile those books every single month and you label, okay, this is a business expense. This is mileage. This is meals and entertainment. And, you know, do your best, right? Do your best. It's way better to send something over that is categorized versus not, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. But can you take that workload off of people's back even if they're just getting started in business and or, hey, they're starting to make some money now. They're making, you know, six figures, multiple six figures, maybe seven figures. Can you take that work off of their plate? And then you can essentially consult them and hop on a call with them maybe once a month or every two weeks to say, got some questions for you. And or most importantly, here's where we're heading, right? So they can make well-informed decisions moving forward. Absolutely. Love what you said there. The the end victim mentality is really important in realizing the responsibility that taxpayers play in their own taxes. They are your taxes. And so when you bring me financial information, if I have to then reformat it and just like dissect through all the unimportant information just to kind of boil it down to the important information, that's not giving me enough time leeway to help you make the effective decisions. So we have, absolutely have to get important, um, uh, good accounting done for our clients. And that is exactly what we do. We talked at the beginning about the difference between the compliance and the tax strategist. My one main critique of the tax strategist is that many of them are not as much high level accountants. And that's why when you have somebody also trained in the public accounting, in the high levels of, of bookkeeping and compliance, you can have somebody to make sure that your books are always looking pristine because that is 100% what we do is we make sure that your books are properly accounted for. It's like the amount of clients that were like, oh yeah, I've just had my you know sister do my books. And then I took a look, take a look at their balance sheet and I go, hmm, all right, can we get purchase documents for all of your you know fixed assets? Can we get you know PSAs and HUD statements for all of your rental real estate you know purchases? Um, I see these loans right here. Can you give us some loan statements so that we can create an amortization table so we can impute interest throughout the year on your profit and loss statement. You know, it's like there's so many specific details that we can get into that people don't even realize that they should be tracking to have proper accounting. And that's exactly what we do. And as you start to grow and you enter the big leagues of business, if that's your aspiration, you need to have somebody that's doing that. Because if you look over that and then you go years into it and then you're getting examined by the IRS or then someone wants to buy your business, you know, that's it. 
it, it becomes a significant unmitigated disaster where you can mitigate that disaster and you can get additional value out of working with somebody who's going to, at an extremely high level, do your accounting, run your payroll, advise you on taxes, and then take the responsibility of the tax advice that they gave you as being completely valid and effective strategies and sign the return. So that is absolutely what we do. It's kind of like a, a combination of those models is we want to help you with proper compliance because it can be easily overlooked how important that is, mm -hmm. right? Until it becomes an issue. But we also want to pay for our services, our high level services with uh, effective strategies and ideas that we come up for you by understanding more about your situation. So they're inextricably linked. Uh, before we dive into the last thing I want to wrap up with is, you know, the best tax strategies for business owners. I think that's going to be quite the hot topic and, oh, yeah. and be a ton of value, of course. Um, but just again, clear, concise, to the point, super high level. When we talk about QuickBooks in the books of a business, um, like what are those super high level things? You know, we have a balance sheet, we have income statements, we have uh, profit and loss. Like, shed some light on that. Yeah. And one thing that you didn't touch on, I think is extremely important that I learned over the years, having your financials aligned, understanding what your net worth is, understanding what your books are, understanding uh, what tax returns are. And again, you don't have to be a full-blown expert, at least having things in order the best you possibly can allows you to use other people's money. In other words, it allows you to go get loans to buy more rental properties. It allows you to uh, be able to shed some light to investors that you might be bringing on or partners that you're bringing on, right? Huge mistake people make, especially on the real estate side or even getting a small business loan, which by the way, is the number one reason why most businesses fail is because they don't have cash. They don't have access right. to capital. A huge reason why people don't invest and get a rental property and or scale their portfolios because you need other people's money, whether it's raising or whether it's the bank's money is your financials are not in line. You're yep. going to go talk to the investors and they're like, hey, can I see financials? Yeah. You don't have them, right? <laughs> or it's confusing. Or better yet, when you go talk to a bank, they say, hey, great. I would like to get you qualified for this line of credit. I would like to get you qualified for this specific loan product, but I need the financials. Yeah. Now you're scrambling back to your CPA. And if you would have known X, Y, Z goals yeah. and or what you're looking to accomplish, they would have been able to prepare and file them accordingly and or you lose time, energy, resources, and ultimately you might lose the deal Yeah, because you can't go get the loan. So again, high level, what are books? Yeah. Quick terminology. Yeah. Well, while you were saying that, I was about to jump out of my seat because I resonate with it so much. The amount of times, just the last couple months where I've had clients on me so hard saying, where's my financials? Can you give me my financials? I'm like, you asked me for financials yesterday. They're like, I need it for a loan. I need it for a loan so bad. The lender's like, I can't, I can't loan to you if you don't have your tax returns finished unless you have certified financial statements from a CPA. I'm like, well, why didn't you ask me for this six months ago where we could have them out tomorrow because we've been working on it for a while. You can't just give me your accounting and expect me to jump the, you know, the line of all of our clients and get this out for you tomorrow because you have a big deal on the line. That's going to come at a significantly large price tag or it's just not going to be possible because it's going to be too much, you know, work because we have our work already planned out for this week. And so- Who are those clients? Name some names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My real estate ones, a couple e-com ones. You know who you are. I still love you. Um, so 
No, it's, it's really important. It's really important. And that's why the proactivity is key because you don't know when this is going to come up. You don't know when the next great investment opportunity is going to be. And they say, Hey, can you get me financials tomorrow? Can you get me your tax returns tomorrow? You can invest $200 in this deal and we're going to make 10 X in five years. All I need is your loan qualification by tomorrow. And they go, Oh, I, uh, I was going to start my accounting, you know, tomorrow my CPA filed an extension for me and I was going to, you know, start my accounting next week. It's like, if you're not proactive about this, you're going to miss out on those opportunities. And so there's another massive piece of value that we can provide through a relationship, through a continued, you know, accounting engagement, because that happens a lot. That has happened to me so many times this year where I am now dealing with this urgent problem that my client could have mitigated if they realized the value of continuous accounting. Like it's, we talked about a couple of examples, you know, yesterday because I resonate with that so much. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not something where I can just snap my fingers and I've got your accounting tomorrow, especially at the, uh, especially at the level that we're trying to document everything. It's, it's not your sister doing your books. We are doing books that we would sign off on, you know, essentially in front of, you know, the SEC, right? It's not certified to that level, but we try to strive for that standard. So it takes time and you have to engage with the CPA long before you need to provide those financials in order to get them in the shape that we want. So make sure you're being proactive about that because we see that so much. So, so again, coming back really quick, uh, QuickBooks that allows you to track where revenue is coming in, right? Where you're, where you're, you're earning income right. uh, and expenses, and that equates to what? Yeah. So you initially asked about the the financial statements, essentially, right? Where we have your balance sheet, we have your profit and loss, we have the statement of cash flows. So the two most important ones are going to be the balance sheet and the income statement. Your balance sheet is a picture. Where are your assets at? How much cash do you have as of this date, right? So your balance sheet as of December 31st, 2022, your income statement for the period of January 1st to December 31st, 2022, right? So your income statement is the movie. Your balance sheet is the picture before and the picture after. Okay. So my cash balance as of January 1st was a million dollars. My cash balance as of December 31st is $1.5 million, right? And so the statement of cash flows now is the explanation, excuse me, the explanation of how that $500,000 changed, right? It could be operating activities, it could be financing activities, it could be investing activities. Um, So the statement of cash flows is an important one for financial analysis, but for providing financial statements and for filing your tax returns, the two most important are the balance sheet and the income statement. So balance sheet is simply assets equals liabilities plus equity, right? So if I take out a loan for, if I put $200,000 of cash down for a loan, right? For a million dollar property, I've contributed $200,000 into this business, right? I have an asset worth a million dollars and I have a loan for $800,000. So what does that look like on the balance sheet? We have our asset, a million dollars, equals liabilities plus equity. We have our liability, the $800,000 loan, and then we have our equity, which is what I contributed into the business. I contributed $200,000. Let's say I contributed $200,000 of cash and then put it down as a down payment. I got the loan. So that's my balance sheet. 
million dollars equals 800,000 plus $200,000. Okay. So let's say then I rent out this property throughout the year. Let's make it simple. I make um, $100,000 in gross revenue, renting it out. I have $50,000 of expenses, which means I have a $50,000 net income. Well, likely what is my balance sheet going to look like after that? Now I'm going to have an additional $50,000 in my bank account. So now my cash is at $50,000. My net income being $50,000 gives me equity, right? Because I earned that. So that's my equity. So the balance sheet is now $1.05 million equals $1.05 million because I created equity through net income. If I lost $50,000, I have less assets, right? Which means I have less equity, goes down. So that is how the balance sheet and the income statement are linked. For sole proprietors, you're only filing that profit and loss statement. You don't track the balance sheet as you know, extensively. For the bigger businesses and for providing financial statements, for loan qualifications, you really do need to you know, prove your net worth, especially for real estate investors. Oh, I own $10 million worth of real estate. That sounds good. Do you have $12 million of debt on that or do you have $2 million of debt on that? That's how you get your net worth, right? Your net worth is how much personal equity that you have. So your personal net worth is how many assets you own minus how many liabilities you have on those assets. So that's another way to look at it. So, so most people getting started, they're going to have a balance sheet at the beginning of the year, end of the year. Sure, it's good to track it every month and mm. update that balance sheet. But as you're like, you're really scaling, right? You're acquiring assets, you're doing bigger deals, you're, you know, scaling. Um, you're going to get that on a more month to month basis. And then that income statement, a, a screenshot in real time, day to day, month to month. Uh, that explains why the balance sheet reflects yeah. what it reflects. Right? Exactly. Um, but again, I'm always going to argue, and you obviously are as well, is it's good to have that balance sheet on a month to month basis to see the trajectory of where you're going personally uh, and professionally with your finances. As we wrap this up, let's touch base on um, some business uh, tax strategies. I want to keep mm-hmm. it pretty yeah. low to moderate level. And then the next show, we'll discuss uh, you know some higher level uh, tax strategies. Awesome. But let's go through. Uh, let's talk about like meals and travel. Like you come yeah. into town, share like a real life example if you don't mind. Absolutely. So number one, the best tax advice is start a business. Be in a genuine pursuit of profit through a trader business because now you can write off many different meals and travel when they have a legitimate business purpose, right? And so that is the number one thing. If you don't have a business, you can't write off your meals and travel related to that business. As long as you genuinely give an effort to make a profit, even if you don't, you still get the write-offs, right? If you're not legitimately making an effort to profit out of this business, then it's, you know, not, you're not supposed to be writing these things off. So of course, have the intent to make a profit, give it an effort. And even if you don't, you can still write off, you know, your cell phone that you're using for business, your computer that you're using for business, you know, the the meals when you take out your potential business partner, potential clients, you know, the travel when you go to a conference, when you want to learn about your industry, all of those things now become legitimate business purposes. And you would likely do those things anyway in your personal life because you like to learn, because you like to go out to eat because you like to travel. So a strategy that I used myself is I came to Ohio simply for business. We're meeting every single day and we are podcasting. We're talking business, talking taxes. We have, I have a business purpose for every single day. So what I did, here's an even kind of higher level strategy is, you know, I use points for my 
hotels. I used I used points for some travel I'm going to do after this, which is personal travel. There's no US dollar. I'm not writing off that travel, so I used points for it. I paid in US dollars in cash for my stay here, right? So I paid the hotel. Of course, I get to write off my entire stay. I, you know, I bought airplane tickets to get here. I get to write all of those off. No points used for those ones. But when I'm going to, you know, Costa Rica afterwards for a personal trip, I'm not trying to turn that into a business trip because I'm just not going to be doing business on it. I'm going to use points for that one. That's just a little extra tip. Hopefully the people like that. Um, So so pay cash, you pay cash. So it's very clear and concise. I paid cash for this, but then you can use points to recoup that cash yeah, so right. exactly. I mean, use the use the credit cards, right? And instead of you know paying for um, you know your business travel with credit card rewards points, I just paid for it in U.S. dollars, and then I can use those points for more personal trips, right? Or, um, or you could redeem it, right? Yeah. In the statement, and you can still have it documented, like it was five thousand yeah. dollars to fly here and to stay in the hotel and pay for miscellaneous food and whatnot. And then you can just go back before the statement hits and not have to pay more cash to pay off the card. You can redeem it with points. Exactly. Right? Cool. Exactly. So there's definitely some some effective credit strategies. We're probably not going to go too deep into it, but travel and meals are my favorite deductions, right? Because as long as you have a genuine business purpose for our conversations, I want to go out to you know dinner with you either way, right? But we talk about business. We have a genuine business purpose we get to deduct it. I want to travel and see new places anyway. Fly out to Ohio. We have business purpose for every weekday. Boom, I get to deduct it all at all. So there's a couple specifics for um, travel and meals that we should get into. Um, Specifically for travel is if you have personal days, those days technically are not deductible. But here's the thing, the IRS doesn't expect you to work all seven days. Right, they expect you to work Monday through Friday. So, if you have a business purpose on Friday and you have a business purpose the next Monday, well, they're not expecting you to work on Saturday and Sunday. And so, you don't have to have a business purpose for your Saturday and Sunday. So, I could go to Six Flags, wherever that is, and I could go to you know a Buckeyes game on Sunday and not have to talk business whatsoever. And I can still write off the trip because I had a business purpose on Friday and on Monday. What about my days for transportation? I'm you know from the northwestern. US, it takes me a while to get out here. Well, if I was traveling on Thursday and then I have to travel back on Tuesday, let's say I'll leave Tuesday night so I can chill a little bit in the morning, right? Those are also business days. So I fly in on Thursday, I have a business purpose on Friday, I chill on Saturday and Sunday, I have a business purpose on Monday, I fly out Tuesday night, right? I'm now there for six days. I only had to have you know, real business purpose meetings, you know, seeing properties, whatever your business purpose in the location is, conferences, you know, on Friday and Monday. And I was there for essentially six days and I get to write off the entire trip. So you can only write off the transportation for, you know, domestic trips where you have over 50% business use. Otherwise it would only be those days. So I'm not recommending you be, you know, overly frivolous, you know, and making up a bunch of business purposes. But if you can document that you had meetings, that you met with a realtor, that maybe you even had a board meeting, you put your family on your board and then you fly out to Hawaii and you have important board meetings where you're discussing the finances and the 
marketing and the plans for your business on you know Thursday and Friday and Monday, and you have your agenda and some meeting minutes, that is a completely legitimate business purpose for your travel. And now you deducted your trip to Hawaii that you've wanted to take for years. And so maybe instead of you know leaving on a Sunday when you don't want to, because you're hungover from the Buckeyes game <laughs> on Saturday, by the yeah. way, not Sunday. Uh, maybe fly out on Monday afternoon. Right. Right. Maybe fly out on Tuesday and line up another meeting on Monday. Yep. So it all lines, just, you know, track it, yeah. take notes, set an agenda, highlight exactly what you did during that time. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I really got from that is all the the meals moving forward are from you. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know I'm if you me. guys got that. It's recorded. <laughs> so you, you guys heard that, right? Meals on, meals on Anthony. Um, share some other... Share some other uh, tax strategies that that people can can integrate, you know, right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, auto deduction, home office deduction is a really big one. Where if you have a place in your home, whether you own it or whether you rent it, and you use it regularly and exclusively for business, you're going to be able to write off your home related expenses up to the proportion of that home office in your home. So easy numbers, 100 square foot office, 1000 square foot home, you are now writing off 10% of all your home related expenses. So if you pay, you know, $24,000 a year for rent, you have a 10% home office, that's a $2,400 deduction. Right, that's a big deduction. So home office is a big one. You know, it's not your living room, it's not your kitchen table. It is a specific area where you are actually doing business and not, you know, also playing video games, watching TV, you know, chilling on the couch. It's not your living room, but that is a really effective one. Uh, miles, right? So if you are driving to a conference, if you're driving to go pick up supplies, whatever business purpose you have for the trips that you take, you are writing off those miles. I want to say it's like 63 and a half cents per mile for 2023. And there's some other strategies as well. Maybe we get deeper into the auto strategy, the auto deduction strategy, because you know I have clients that before the end of the year, they're going to buy a new vehicle that they use 100% for business, and they're going to use bonus depreciation to get a $100,000 write-off, but they only drove it 20 20 miles for business. And so if they just took the standard mileage rate, they would get a $12 deduction because they took the actual expenses method, they got a $100,000 deduction. So there's absolutely some additional strategies we could get into related to deducting, you know, your your autos, right? And uh, businesses, how about incurring expenses before the end of the year, right? So paying your advisors, paying your consultants, oh, I've got $100,000 from business. Um, I'm looking at a $20,000 expense that I need to pay off at some point over the next three months, it's December. How about I pay it right now mm-hmm. instead of in two months? And that way, you know, I get that $20,000 deduction now, mm-hmm. right? Instead of a year from now, time yeah. value of money, it's way more valuable now than in a year. Yeah, so if you go to prepare and or you're having proactive conversation with your accountant and it's looking like, hey, there's going to be a tax liability of 100000 or a couple hundred thousand, and you know you're going to go pay uh, your legal counsel, your tax counsel, this coach and mentor. Uh, you're going to go do X, Y, Z. You might as well book it now. You might as well pay for the expense now, so we can reduce that tax liability right now. And you're not getting taxed on, let's say, two hundred thousand. You're going to get taxed on half of that, a hundred thousand, yep. right? Yep. So those are things that accelerating you, income, right? Uh, excuse me, accelerating expenses and then deferring income. How about I'm about to get paid off of this job. It's December 30th 
hold off on paying that invoice for two days, right? And pay me on January 1st and I don't have to pay taxes on it for an additional, you know, 14 months, right? Instead of, oh, you pay me today, I pay taxes on it, you know, in two months. Or better yet, it gives you more time to plan, prepare, put other strategies in place to mitigate that liability that you uh, are going to be responsible for immediately in December 30th. Exactly. A lot of tax strategy, especially at the highest level, is about timing, right? Mm-hmm. We time our income. We time our deductions. We smooth our income. When you're in a really high income earning year and you're taxed at the highest rate, you could possibly get taxed at, you want as many deductions as possible. If you have a year where you're incurring a net loss and you wouldn't pay any taxes at all, that's when you want to recognize as much income as possible. So timing is one of the key aspects of strategic tax planning. I love it. Well, I think that's a lot of information for uh, the first show. We're going to we're gonna dive in a little bit deeper on another show with uh, those that are you know, really scaling their business, right? Just taking the the strategy, the planning to a whole other level and then ultimately getting into that investor bucket, right? Ultimately getting into, hey, what do things look like if I am a real estate uh, investor? What do things look like if I am in cryptocurrency, if I'm in stocks, if I'm, you know, really just taking your income and opportunities to another level? Excited to have you back on here and we discuss those topics at a much deeper level a little bit more higher end. Highly recommend for you guys to rewind this, listen to it again, and drop some questions below. If you guys are watching this on a specific platform that you can comment, drop some questions below. There's some resources that we're going to be providing and uh, and questions that you guys can, can ask directly to Anthony, a link to schedule a call with him and his team. How can people get a hold of you? How can they get in contact with you to continue to learn, continue to have the right person in their corner like yourself and your team? What do you recommend people do? Yeah, please follow me on Instagram, Tax Tone CPA, on Twitter, Anthony Price CPA. We're continuing to to grow our content. We focus a lot on the in-person relationships. So, you know, we're, we're continuing to grow there. Um, you can shoot me an email, anthony at priceless.cpa or go on our website and you can book a call with myself or with my team. So priceless.cpa, not priceless.com, priceless.cpa. Perfect. And all that will be below the platform that you guys are listening to and or watching and listening to. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Taxes are the biggest expense you ever have in your lifetime. So I hope you guys got some ton, got tons of value and we will see you in the next show.